you will enjoy Willard's. I was just saying to Lucas, Willard's Hotel is, is a hotel chock-a-block full of all kinds of interesting Civil War uh, historical connections. For one thing, Julia Ward Howe wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic uh, at uh, the Willard Hotel. She was staying there. She wrote the words for it. She heard Union soldiers singing this jaunty little tune, John Brown's body is a moldering in the grave. She thought that that could be improved upon. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> and so in the spring of 1862, she becomes the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And there are many other wonderful stories attached to Willard's as well. Lincoln stayed there when he first arrived in Washington. Uh, before his inauguration, he arrived in late February uh, in Washington. Of course, he couldn't move into the White House because James Buchanan was still there. Uh, but he spends about a week and a half at Willard's uh, meeting with delegations. That's where he, he, uh, he encounters his first written death threat. Uh, when, when the Lincolns uh, finally uh, opened up their bags in the suite at Willard's where they were staying, there was a pile of mail and Oh, congratulations, best wishes, and yes, a death threat uh, waiting for them there in February of 1861. <coughs> um, maybe that is part of the course with Washington hotels, but you know, check back with me and let me know if you find the same thing when you get there. Um, dur during the war, Ulysses Grant stayed there. Almost everybody stayed. Someone, almost everyone had an excuse for staying at Willard's. Mostly the people that stayed at Willard's were office seekers people who came to town looking for fat government patronage jobs, and they would put up at Willard's. And that became the launching point, since Willard's was only a block away from the White House, uh, for going and paying a call on the president and, and begging him for a job. People literally did that. You didn't go to a sort of, there was no clearinghouse you went to uh, for applying for a federal job. There was no form to fill out, no paperwork. Boy, weren't those the good old days. Instead, you went directly to the President of the United States, and you got an appointment with him in his office, and you sat down, and you consumed his valuable time begging him for that post office job that you wanted. If that seems like a little unbalanced, well, that's the way it was uh, since Lincoln, of course, leap, leap uh, what's the word I want? Uh, he limps through the Civil War uh, with a very small staff. It never amounts to more than four or five people. And uh, he's a workaholic, which makes it worse. He insists on staying up all hours of the night doing his paperwork, making copies of things, filing things. Uh, so if you really wanted to get that job, you went right to the top. You went right to the President of the United States. You could walk in the front door of the White House. There wouldn't be any guards there, at least not in the first part of the war. Uh, you walk in the front door. The only person to stop you was the aged Irish doorkeeper, Edward McManus. And you went up what was then the great central staircase of the White House up to the second floor. On the second floor, the Lincolns had the family quarters at one end and the office suite at the other. And there was nothing to protect Lincoln as he tried in the morning to move from the family quarters to his office. The office seekers would always, they'd be, they'd be queued up down the steps and out to the door. And as he tried to move from the family quarters down the hall on the second floor to his office suite, uh, people would pester him, and they would thrust petitions and requests into his hand. Finally, they had to build a separate partition in the hallway so that he could at least get to his desk without being pecked to death by, uh, by people who wanted to see him and ask him for all kinds of things. And it really is amazing the, the, the number of things that people would bring up that they wanted to talk to Lincoln about. Uh, sometimes these were great matters of state. Senators, congressmen would show up. 
Then there were other people who came in who were very upset because they had rented rooms to soldiers and the rent hadn't been paid, so they were coming to the President of the United States <laughs> to, uh, to get, make sure the soldiers paid their rent. <laughs> it, it amazed even Lincoln, uh, and sometimes it exasperated the man. Although Lincoln is well known for his, his tremendous fund of patience and humility, there were moments when he really wanted just to throw them out the window. Sometimes when he wondered whether he should throw himself out the window, he sometimes made the comment that, frankly, he would like, he, he, was, he would be very sure some people would be very happy uh, to discover that he had hung himself from a lamppost out on the street uh, overnight, and uh, sometimes he actually felt like doing it. So sometimes people could really, really nettle him. And this man, famous for his patience and humility, would just lose it and throw them out. And he would have some hard words for them. But he, that was only when he was really pushed to it. Uh, these were the kinds of people who inhabited Willards. So when you walked into Willards during the Civil War, you could expect to find several hundred people busily scratching away on letters of endorsement and trying to send messages to important people. Someone said that when you walked into the lobby at Willards, you just heard this general scratching sound, like, uh, like locusts in summer. And it was people writing away you know, their, their requests for office appointments and letters to officious and official people. But that was Willards. Will Ulysses S. Grant showed up at Willards when he came east for the first time in 1864, March of 1864, to take up his appointment from Congress for the newly revived rank of Lieutenant General. Grant was not what you would call an imposing-looking person. Lincoln was imposing, ugly, but imposing. Right? There wasn't much question about who was walking in the door when Lincoln walked in the door. You, you knew it right away. There was no way he could disguise it. Grant was the diametric opposite. Grant was about five feet five or six, slightly built, reddish-brown hair and beard, and just about as ordinary a human being as you could lay eyes upon. Uh, John Yeo, the uh, critic and uh, columnist for New York World, New York, U.S. News and World Report, made the comment, and I think this is right on the money, uh, uh, this was in the anniversary of the centennial of Grant's death in 1985. He wrote a column in U.S. News and World Report, and he said, Ulysses S. Grant was the sort of man whom, when you first met him, the first words you could expect out of his mouth would be, meet the wife. <laughs> he, he was... It's not that he was ugly, and it's not that he was handsome. He was just kind of a generic human being. That's what he looked like. There was nothing special about the man. He didn't dress up, and he didn't put on airs. And he was just very direct and forthright and blunt. And someone said he looked like a man who would solve a problem by putting his head through a brick wall, and that he was about determined to do it at that moment. Ulysses S. Grant comes east... He has reservations at Willard's for himself and his son. Comes east, walks into Willard, no introduction, walks up to the great desk at Willard's, which you'll see there. Walks up to the great desk at Willard's and asks for a room. Clark looks at him and says, well, well I think we've got something up on the top floor. Grant says, all right, that's fine. Turns the guest register around, Grant signs it. <clears throat> Goes around again, the clerk looks at it. <laughs> oh, we have a suite reserved for you, General Grant. Of course, General Grant. Everybody in the lobby, all the heads come up. Ooh, this grin. When he comes down to dinner, when he comes down, he has to stand up on the chair 
at his table because everyone is applauding over here, General Grant, General Grant. He just hates it. He, he, was, he, was, he was not the kind of man that you spontaneously cheered. There were generals that you did that for. George McClellan was one of them. <laughs> George McClellan had, oh, he had pizzazz. He had, uh, he had grace. He had style. He looked like a general. He really did. Jacob Dolson Cox, who commanded a corps in the Army of the Potomac for a while, said that McClellan had this way of riding down the line of his troops and twirling his cap in salute. They just sent these guys crazy. I mean, they cheered and cheered and cheered until their, their lungs were about to burst. Not Grant. People didn't cheer Grant. Soldiers marched past him. He's sitting on the porch of a house gnawing on a pork chop. Soldiers just kind of tip their caps to it. He waves back on the pork chop. <laughs> That was Grant. <laughs> and when the surrender at Appomattox takes place, when the meeting is arranged, Grant, of course, and his army had been pursuing Lee pell-mell, and Grant had left his baggage trains far, far behind. And all he had with him were the clothes he was standing up in, his muddy boots, there's an ordinary soldier's tunic with his lieutenant general's shoulder straps sewn on, and he realized he was going into a meeting with Robert E. Lee. Now, this, this was, in some respects, of course, good news for Ulysses Grant, because this was going to be the surrender. Grant, in fact, had been banging along, along with the army there in an old wagon. He had a migraine headache, because he was prey to migraines. This is somewhat connected to those stories about, about Grant's drunkenness. People were accusing Grant of being drunk and drunk and drunk. And a lot of the times, what Grant was suffering from was migraine. I mean, he had had an alcohol problem. But during the war, those who were closest to him swore he never touched the stuff. But what he suffered from was migraine. And if any of you are migraine sufferers or you know migraine sufferers, you know that the pain can sometimes, and the effects of that, the symptoms of that, can sometimes make someone look like they have been on a world-class bender. So Grant has a migraine. The message comes from Lee asking to meet for surrender terms. And Grant said in his memoirs, he read that message and the migraine just disappeared. <laughs> they went ahead, met Lee. Lee was already at Appomattox at the house of Wilmer McLean when Grant arrived. Lee was there with one of his staff officers. Lee was immaculate from head to toe. Dress, sword, gold filigreed uh, a hilt on the sword, dress uniform, I mean it. I mean, it was a picture postcard. And there's Grant, no sword, no sidearms, muddy boots, old beaten up uniform. Grant said he never felt more humiliated in his life, not by Lee, but because of his own, the way he was dressed. And the two of them sat down, they did some chit-chat for a while, talked about the Mexican War, Grant was not a man for small talk, neither was Lee, so they kind of ran out of subjects to reminisce about a little awkward silence. Lee said, well, I guess we have some business we have to contract. <clears throat> and so they went into it. Terms were written out. Lee read them, signed them. And at the conclusion of the ceremony, if you can call it that, this is taking place in the parlor of the McLean House at Appomattox. 
And in this little parlor are a number of Grant's senior officers, Sheridan, Custer, people like that. And then there's Lee and with his one staff officer, Colonel Marshall. And he's got a, an orderly sergeant holding the horses outside. And Grant proceeds to begin introducing Lee to his, his generals and his staffers there in the parlor. And they go around the room, meeting people, shaking hands. It's very grave. It's very formal. It's very polite. Lee was the quintessential Virginia gentleman. Comes to Grant's military secretary, Colonel Eli S. Parker, and Lee stops and stares at him. And the reason he stops and stares is because that Eli Parker, although Parker had, was a longtime friend of Grant's, had been an engineer, civil engineer, trained a civil engineer like Grant, and had known each other before the war. Eli S. Parker was a full-blooded Iroquois satchel from upstate New York. Swarthy of face, heavy of build. And Lee stared at him. And a little uneasy riffle went through the room. People wondered, was Lee offended? Lee was an old Indian fighter on the Western Plains. Was he offended at being introduced to an Indian? Or worse still, had Lee mistaken Parker for a black man? And did he believe that Grant was deliberately trying to humiliate him here at the hour of his greatest humiliation? And then Lee broke the silence. Well, Colonel Parker, he said, I am glad at last to meet a real American. And Parker replied, General Lee, we are all Americans. The Emancipation Proclamation. I have a couple of questions I would like to ask, as usual, but before I do that, before I do that, I want to do a quick, I want to do a quick schedule of events. I'm going to do a quick calendar of what happened to the Emancipation Proclamation and how we got there, all right? Because the path is a torturous one. It's not easy. It's not direct. So let's review where this all begins. It begins in April of 1861. The Confederates have just bombarded Fort Sumter into submission. The flag has gone down. And Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, an abolitionist of the abolitionists, goes to Lincoln in the White House and says, you now have a state of war in your hands. That also means that you have a weapon, an opportunity, an excuse, if you will, to act now to free the slaves. You can use the war powers of the presidency to decree emancipation right now. And you can do it now because the Confederates have put themselves in that position. They put themselves beyond the pale of the law by firing on Fort Sumter. And you can retaliate this way. And in a sense, that's where the story of emancipation begins with that visit of Charles Sumner on the 15th of April, 1861. The next date to mark down is August of 1861. That is when Congress passes the first Confiscation Act. 
Congress has been called into special session by Lincoln, meets on the 4th of July, 1861, and in the process of that special session, adopts an act which provides for the confiscation by the federal government of any southern slaves being used to promote the Confederate war effort. Slaves, in other words, being used as manual laborers, teamsters, camp workers. Any southern slaves being used in that capacity are now officially liable to confiscation by the United States government. This was not necessarily a radical idea, because in time of war, it had long been understood that belligerent powers in time of war have the privilege of confiscating the war-making property of their enemies. So that if you invade another country, and you come upon another country's arsenal, you may confiscate it. Now, the two surprises that are connected with the First Confiscation Act are these. The First Confiscation Act is treating slaves as property. Now, that is funny in an ironic way. All along, it had been the contention of southern slaveholders that slaves were chattel property. Whereas abolitionists in the North insisted, no, you cannot regard a human being as a property. In a sense, the First Confiscation Act is an elaborate joke on slaveholders. It's saying, oh, you want to treat slaves as property? Okay, we'll take you up on it and make them as liable to confiscation as any other kind of property in wartime. On the other hand, there was a second surprise here. The second surprise was bound up with legal difficulties. This is what the Confiscation Act didn't deal with. And that is, how can you have a confiscation act when there are not two belligerent nations at war? Yes, you can confiscate an enemy belligerent's property, war-making property, in time of war. But was the Confederacy legally an enemy belligerent? Abraham Lincoln had always insisted that secession was impossible. In his 4th of July, 1861 special message, he spells that out in great detail. Secession is an impossibility. He had said that in his first inaugural. In view of universal law, secession is impossible. Well, if secession is impossible, then no such thing as the Confederate States legally exists. They may call themselves the Confederate States of America. They may adopt a constitution. They may have a Congress and a president. They can have anything they like. But so can you when you dress up for Halloween. <laughs> In fact, despite the window dressing of a Confederate constitution and a Confederate president and a Confederate Congress, the fact of the matter is that in law, the Confederacy is really only a domestic insurrection. The rebel army is not the army of the Confederacy. It is a collection of insurgents, if you will, maybe even enemy combatants. Because the Confederacy cannot be a state. 
The moment you recognize that the Confederacy is a legitimate nation, then you have legitimized secession along with it. So, is the Confederacy really a belligerent nation? No, it cannot be in legal standing a belligerent because it can't be a nation. And it can't be a nation because it can't secede from the Union. But if it can't be a belligerent nation, how can you confiscate its property? That is a problem the Confiscation Act does not address. It also has to be said, too, <laughs> the federal government, by this legislation, proposed to confiscate these slaves. All right, fine, you're going to confiscate them. What do you do with them afterwards? <laughs> Confiscation, after all, is not the same as emancipation. Just because the federal government has confiscated a slave does not turn that slave into something else. If you confiscate a table, it does not become a chair. Okay? If you confiscate a slave, you can't change that slave's legal status simply by the act of confiscation. All you have on your hands is a, well, confiscated slave. So what do you do when the cause of the belligerent action is over. If what you have confiscated from an enemy is gunpowder, well, you can blow it up and <laughs> not too much you can give back, and that's, that's sort of understood. Generally speaking, however, you don't blow up slaves. What do you do when the situation, when the legal situation or the legal difficulty or the insurrection or the belligerent nation, whatever you want to call it, what do you do when it's over? give it back. There are no treaty terms. There is no Geneva Convention. There is no world court at The Hague. In fact, the only document governing relations in war is the Paris Convention of 1856, which was convened at the conclusion of the Crimean War because of all the anomalous situations which had popped up in the Napoleonic Wars and in the Crimean War itself about determining seizures of property, laws of blockade, relations between belligerent nations. Significantly, the United States was not a signatory to the Paris Convention. It sent representatives, but it didn't sign it. So what exactly is the legal status of confiscated property? That's up in the air. And the Confiscation Act doesn't really talk about it. The next date we have to deal with is September of 1861. In the Department of Missouri, the commander of the department is John Charles Fremont. John Charles Fremont was a celebrity. He had explored the West. He was known as the Pathfinder. He had moved to California participated in California's insurrection against Mexican authority during the Mexican War. He had married Jessie Benton, the daughter of Thomas Hart Benton, one of the most important political power brokers of the country, and thus Fremont, as his son-in-law, entered politics, ran unsuccessfully for the Senate to be the first representative from California as a state in the United States Senate hit it big with the gold rush and became fabulously wealthy. And then in 1856 was the first nominee of the Republican Party for president. 
He was an unlikely convert to Republican principles because before that point, he had never indicated one way or the other what he thought about slavery. But now he became a determined anti-slavery man. And at the beginning of the war, it just seemed perfectly natural that John Charles Fremont should be given a commission in the Union Army and sent to Missouri to stabilize the situation there. There was only one problem. John Charles Fremont was a moron. That's the main street of Las Vegas. How dare you say that? That's the main street in Monterey, California, too, where he lived. And, and, it's, a, and it's a shame to have to say it with all the places named for the Pathfinder. But the truth of the matter was that the famous journals of his expeditions that made him famous for the first time were written by others. He just kind of added John Charles Fremont at the end. Uh, <laughs> like some other people we know today. You know, other people write books for them, they put their names on it. And, mm, yeah. He had married Jesse Benton Fremont. Of course, Jesse had more brains than he did. And she was the real political mover and shaker. She pushed him, prodded him, put him at the front of the stage. And the laurels he won were really the ones she worked for. The money helped. I mean, gold, like the rain, falls upon the just, the unjust, the geniuses, and the idiots. And so it fell upon, and so it fell upon John Charles Fremont. And politics being what it was, one has to assume that in 1856, the Republicans nominated Fremont because they knew they didn't have a chance of winning anyway. But if they put this celebrity guy up, that would get them immediate headlines, which it did. When the war breaks out, it is therefore natural that Lincoln should be pestered to give Fremont a commission and a command, and he does. And he has hardly arrived in Missouri, which was torn by guerrilla warfare, before the moron side began to make its appearance. <laughs> Galled by attacks from Confederate insurgents in Missouri, Fremont retaliates by declaring martial law. And as part of that martial law, announces the emancipation of any slaves owned by rebels caught in arms in Missouri. This causes a sensation, and for a couple of reasons. One is, Fremont does this on the strength of martial law, at which point everybody says, like Bill Cosby, right, what's a martial law? In fact, martial law was an almost unknown concept in American jurisprudence. Martial law had only been invoked one time before in any significant way in American military history, and that was in 1814 and 1815 by Andrew Jackson in New Orleans. Naturally, thank you, yes. <laughs> because Jackson sort of lived his whole life in a state of martial law. <laughs> you disagreed with him, you found yourself fighting a duel, he killed you. <laughs> Boy, you want to talk about great stories. Get some of those about Andrew Jackson. That man had a temper that would make a volcano look like a, a, a picnic. You know the great story about the man, the editor who insulted his wife, Charles Dickinson. 
made some sneery comment about Jackson's wife, Rachel, all the details I won't go into. Jackson challenged him to a duel, which is what Jackson's enemies wanted, because Dickinson was a crack shot with a dueling pistol. <laughs> so they face off. And since Jackson had issued the challenge, Dickinson gets to shoot first. He does. He hits Jackson in the ribs, and the ball lodges right up next to his lung. Jackson sways a little bit, stands straight back up, levels his pistol as the sign that, hmm, there's another round. And Dickinson says, my God, have I missed him? Jackson proceeds to shoot him in the chest. Dickinson dies later that day. Jackson gets on his horse and rides 20 miles back to Nashville. He carries Dickinson's lead ball in his body for the rest of his life. It creates an abscess in his lung, which troubles him to the end of his days. But Jackson said afterwards, I would have killed him if he had shot me in the brain. <laughs> no wonder, no wonder that when Jackson that when Jackson as president had to face down the nullifiers in South Carolina in 1832, Jackson declared that he would put himself at the head of the United States Army, personally invade South Carolina, and hang the first man he met from the nearest tree. At which point one South Carolina senator went to Thomas Hart Benton and said, did Jackson really mean that? To which Benton replied, when Andy Jackson starts talking about a hanging, men start looking for a rope. <laughs> John Charles Fremont, however, was not Andrew Jackson, and no, nobody really knew what martial law was, because in fact, Andrew Jackson's imposition of martial law in New Orleans was itself fiercely contested. He had imposed martial law to calm the city, give the city orderliness in the face of a British attack. This did not sit well with a number of editors of newspapers in the, in the city. One of them went, ran afoul of Jackson, and Jackson had him locked up. The man went to the federal judge, got a writ of habeas corpus. Jackson looked at the writ of habeas corpus, tore it up. Because the essence of martial law is the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. That's, that's at its core. That's what martial law is. The federal judge was thrown into the clink along with his prospective client. At which point the federal judge, being a federal judge, federal judges are never down and out. The federal judge from jail issues an order fining Andrew Jackson. Well, Jackson, after the emergency is over and martial law is reviewed, Jackson has to pay the fine, which he does. The fine is not refunded, not refunded until 25 years later on a motion in Congress from a new representative from Illinois, Stephen A. Douglas, a great admirer of Andrew Jackson. So the example of Jackson in New Orleans in 1814 to 1815 doesn't really lend a whole lot of light on how martial law is to function. That didn't bother John Charles Fremont, however, who tended to make up life as he was going along. And so he issues this decree involving the not just the confiscation but the emancipation. He's not going just to confiscate property. He's going to change its title. He's going to change its ownership. He's going to change its legal status. And at this point, Lincoln looks at this and blanches. 
for two reasons. One, Lincoln, after all, is a lawyer. What is going to happen if, when Fremont issues this martial law decree and emancipates slaves, what's going to happen when their owners, at the conclusion of martial law, decide to go to federal court and demand their property back? Are the slaves emancipated then or not? Or, in fact, is that going to give the federal courts a chance to dicker over this whole matter of emancipation? I mean, suppose, just think of it this way. Suppose Fremont confiscates a slave and declares the slave emancipated. Martial law doesn't last forever. It only exists during time of war, and even within time of war, there's some question about how it gets applied in certain areas. You know, you can't have a war in Florida and declare martial law in Portland. You know, Portland's not endangered by Florida. All right? So how long can a martial law decree exist? Once that decree has expired, once the emergency has been satisfied, then what's going to happen? Well, the slaveholder is going to go to federal court because the slaveholder is going to complain that his property was taken from him without due and just compensation and without due process. So it's going to go into federal court and it's going to be in the federal circuit court and it's going to be in the federal appeals court and it's finally going to get up to the United States Supreme Court. <coughs> Whoops. Who's the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Roger the draft dodger. Roger B. Tawney. And how do you think that dear Mr. Tawney is going to decide a case on emancipation and martial law? That would give Tawney a perfect opening. Now, he could kick the idea of federal emancipation to death forever. I mean, all it would take would be like Dred Scott, one authoritative dictum from the highest court declaring that the federal government had no business under any circumstances whatsoever emancipating any slaves whatsoever, and the whole idea of emancipation would disappear in the blink of an eye. Can Lincoln afford to run that risk? No, he can't. What's more, he also can't afford to alienate opinion in the border states. There were four slave states which did not join with their southern slaveholding state brethren, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. Delaware might not have been all that critical, and perhaps maybe not even Missouri, since it was as far to the west as it was. Although, bear in mind, the borders of Missouri, we think of Missouri as the west, bear in mind that the borders of Missouri extend up along the Mississippi River to more than half the height of the state of Illinois. But the really critical factors were going to be Maryland, because Maryland, of course, surrounds the District of Columbia on three sides, and Kentucky, because Kentucky's northern border runs along the Ohio River. And Lincoln understands very clearly that if, for some reason, Maryland and Kentucky are stampeded into the arms of the Confederates, he can kiss this war goodbye. Because Washington will then be surrounded on all sides, the Virginia side, the three Maryland sides, 
by the Confederacy, and the Confederacy would be able to post its northern border at the Ohio River and talk about a conveniently defensible line. Lincoln cannot afford one of his chicken-brained soldiers driving Kentucky and Maryland into the arms of the rebels. And so Lincoln revokes Fremont's Emancipation Decree. Fremont, as a tribute to stupidity, <laughs> writes back to Lincoln and says, I won't obey unless you give me a direct order. Isn't that rich? This, this playboy celebrity thinks he is so great. Writes back to the President of the United States, I won't obey your order unless you specifically tell me in exact words what I am not allowed to do. And to improve on it, he sends Jesse to Washington, either that or Jesse sent herself, to go join the long lines of office seekers and other people pestering Lincoln for a personal visit. She puts up at Willard's, here's something else you can look up when you're at Willard's, sends a message over to the White House, and I'm saying to the White House, that she, Jesse Beckham Fremont, has arrived. This is at 8 o'clock in the evening. Lincoln sends back a message at once. I want you here now. And at midnight, he has an interview with Jesse Benton Fremont. The two of them fight like cats and dogs. I mean, it's really nasty. It's really nasty. Afterwards, Jesse Benton Fremont's best words describing Abraham Lincoln was that he was of a slimy, slithery nature. He says to her, well, you're quite a little female politician, aren't you? The male chauvinist pig part of Abraham Lincoln peeking out. It was not a pleasant interview. Lincoln obliged Fremont, made his order specific, and then when Fremont proposes to do more idiotic things in Missouri, Lincoln fires him and replaces him with Henry Wager Halleck. Boy, there's a name to conjure with, isn't it? Henry Wager Halleck. I don't know how many of you are Civil War kinds of people, but you know, does the name Henry Wager Halleck mean anything to you? Is it, is it one of those great names in American military history? No. No, as a matter of fact, it turned out that he really was not a great general, but he was one thing that the other generals were not. He was a lawyer who'd written a textbook on international law. Oh, yeah, he was a West Point graduate. He did have a military education. But after the Mexican War, he had gone to California, set up shop there. And because of the difficulties between the transition between Mexican law and United States law at the end of the Mexican War, nobody ended up knowing more about the technicalities of international law and the law of nations than Henry Wager Halleck. And he writes a textbook on the subject. No wonder in this situation, Lincoln appoints Halleck to Missouri. He doesn't need a great soldier. He just needs a good California lawyer. And that's what he gets. Now, we move on our calendar to November of 1861. In November of 1861, Abraham Lincoln sits down, sketches out a plan. He doodles this up and calls in Representative George Fisher. He calls in Fisher because Fisher is the lone representative 
from the state of Delaware. Delaware, of course, is a very small state. A little bit like the situation with Wyoming. You know, Wyoming has one representative but two senators. Well, ditto with Delaware. One representative who was sympathetic to Lincoln and two senators who hated him with a perfect hatred. In fact, one of, one of Delaware's senators, who's from Delaware here? This is not, oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is not going to be a compliment to Delaware. Um, one of Delaware's senators, Willard Salisbury, who spent most of his time in the Senate, three sheets to the wind. Um, I mean, if you read the Congressional Globe, which is the transcript of uh, congressional proceedings, this man simply delivered himself of one blistering attack on Lincoln after another in his tenor as uh, as a senator from Delaware. In fact, he got so foul-mouthed about it that one of, it's one of the rare occasions when the sergeant-at-arms has to be called in and the man forcibly shut up. That's, that's how bad it was. Willard Salisbury, there's a name that will live in something less than <clears throat> fame. Infamy, maybe? Anyway. Lincoln calls in, not the senators, he calls in Representative George Fisher, and he lays before Fisher this plan. It is an emancipation plan. It's an emancipation plan that has these components to it. Lincoln is proposing that the state of Delaware will begin the process of emancipating its slaves on a gradual calendar. Note the word gradual. This was, in fact, the way that almost all of the northern states had emancipated their slaves after the Revolution. But gra a gradual emancipation scheme lays it out with a timetable. Slaves born after such and such a date, when they get to such and such an age, will be emancipated. And the idea is that by 1890, there will be no more slaves in Delaware. Slavery will have died out, literally. He also devises an alternative schedule which would accelerate this gradual emancipation. And that would move the schedule up to about 1872. To go along with the gradual aspect, Lincoln proposes compensation. Compensation to slaveholders. And in order to put the bait on the hook, Lincoln offers to provide the state of Delaware, by vote of Congress, of course, with approximately $700,000 in United States bonds, which the state of Delaware will then use as a fund to compensate slaveholders in the state of Delaware who sign on to this gradual emancipation program. And then third, the program is voluntary in the sense that the people who are going to enact this gradual compensated emancipation plan are the state legislators of Delaware. Not the United States Congress, not the United States Army, not the President of the United States, but the legislators of the state of Delaware. And of course, as I said, the bait for this would be $700,000 in United States bonds. Think of it, think of it as a Chrysler-type buyout, even a bailout. 
of slavery in Delaware. Why Delaware? Well, for one thing, Delaware had the smallest slave population of any of the four border states. Had only about 1,700 slaves, most of them concentrated in the southernmost of Delaware's three counties. If Delaware could adopt this, it could put this process into the works much more quickly and achieve its goal much more quickly than any other state in the Union. So to Delaware, this proposal will go. Lincoln puts it into the hands of George Fisher, and George Fisher, as the lone representative, will take it back to the powers that be in Delaware and get this ball moving in the Delaware legislature. That's November of 1861. Now we move to 1862. In 1862, April of 1862, Congress finally turns its attention to the one piece of territory in the United States where it has uncontested authority to legislate about slavery, the District of Columbia. There, Congress adapt, adopts a plan for emancipation in the District of Columbia, which, who, no surprise, is a compensated emancipation plan. In other words, slave owners in the District of Columbia will be paid for their slaves on a schedule established by Congress. And if you'd like to see what slaves were really valued like, you should take a look at the Washington newspapers from April through the end of the year of 1862, because the Washington newspapers published lists of slave owners and their slaves with the valuations for compensation in the newspapers themselves. Lincoln signs the District Emancipation Bill, observing that it contains all the features that he thinks are the most important for the emancipation. I should say that for many years in the District of Columbia, this date in April was celebrated as Emancipation Day. Parades, fairs, all kinds of celebrations. And it all petered out by about 1901 because quarreling factions within the black community could not agree on how to continue the celebration. So the celebration stopped. That was until the 1990s, when a community activist in the district finally decided, we need to get this back on the calendar. And so for the last several years, observations of district emancipation have once again become a feature of life in the District of Columbia. But it was absent for a long time. This is a great movement. This is a great movement. This is the first time that Congress actually passes legislation to abolish slavery. Unfortunately, it does it in the only one little postage stamp of a place that it can do that directly, and that's the district. But better there, at least, as a start. May 1862, moving in our calendar. May of 1862. Lincoln takes the outlines of his, the compensated emancipation program that he's devised for Delaware and offers to extend it to Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. He is confident that spring, as he tells David Davis. He is confident 
that if Delaware adopts the plan, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri will follow. And there's a certain method to the madness here. Think of it this way. Let's suppose that Delaware does, in fact, adopt this plan. And Delaware sets emancipation as its goal, begins compensating slaveholders, and slavery is on its way out the door. Now, let us suppose that you are a slave owner in the state of Delaware. There's not many of you, but you know, you're there. How are you going to respond to the legislature's initiative? Well, you could do one of two things. One is that you could take the money and run. Take the compensation. All right, it's bought out. You're not a slaveholder anymore. Or, what else could you do? What's the alternative? Well, you, you, you could, except who in Delaware is going to buy them? No, to Maryland. Oh, to Maryland. Yes, you could. You could take your slaves across the border into Maryland and sell them there. But you can't keep them in Delaware. You're, they're either going to get emancipated and you're going to take the compensation, or you can go across the state line into Maryland and sell there. Now, what happens to the population, the slave population of Maryland, when that happens? Oh, it goes up. Isn't that remarkable? When you add things, they increase. <laughs> See, I did, I did have, I did get through arithmetic in, in school. I know these things, right? Okay. What happens to the value of a commodity when supply increases? Yes, it goes down, doesn't it? If slaves are a commodity, what happens to the price of slaves in Maryland? It goes down. It goes down. The value of your investment, as I said before, a slave is, in economic terms, a capital investment. The value of your capital investment depreciates. Now, suppose then Lincoln turns to the Maryland legislature and suggest that the Maryland legislature adopt compensated emancipation, gradual emancipation, voluntary emancipation. How do you suppose Maryland slaveholders are going to react? They're going to react, they're going to react one of two ways, aren't they? Because seeing the value of their slaves depreciated, they'll decide they've seen the handwriting on the wall, and they'll take the money and run. Cut the losses, get out of the slave business while the getting is good. Because they, they figure this is going to happen anyway. The value is going down. Well, what do you do if you have investments and the investments are losing value? You sell them. You get out of the market. All right, so you can do one of two things then. You can take the compensation offer as a Marylander. You can take the compensation offer and you're out of the slaveholding business. Then, what else could you do? What's the other thing you could do? Take them to another state. So. You could take those slaves over to Kentucky and sell them there, right? And what happens in Kentucky when that happens? You increase the supply, and then Lincoln comes and makes an offer to the Kentucky <coughs> legislature, and all the Kentucky slaveholders start to get nervous. And then Kentucky slaveholders decide, some of them, they'll take the compensation, and then the alternative is to do what? Take the slaves and sell them in Missouri. What are you doing? You're shrinking the size. You're shrinking the space in which slavery is legal. More and more slaves are being concentrated into a smaller and smaller space. What happens to the value of those slaves? Continues to go down, 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 down. And what happens to the state legislatures? 
does the process get slower or get faster? Faster. It accelerates because everybody wants to get out faster then. Ah, you see the methods of the madness? Do you also see why, as I said yesterday, the South was not necessarily paranoid in seceding from the Union? Because in this plan that Lincoln has offered first to the state of Delaware, in what detail, in what way has he violated the pledge that he made in the first inaugural not to interfere with slavery? What has he done that interferes with the pledge he gave to Alexander Stevens in that letter? Not to interfere with slavery. I'm sorry if this is a dumb question. But <coughs> no, 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 no such thing as a dumb question until you ask it the second time. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it just seems to me that um, if this is an emancipation plan by Lincoln, um, wouldn't the sale of the slaves from one state to another be illegal under the terms of the legislation? No. Because then it's not emancipation, it's just something around. A state legislature cannot regulate its commerce with another state. The Constitution and the Comedy Clause in the Constitution right. forbids that. So that if somebody wants to take their property and sell it in another state, they can do that without the state of, of Delaware being able to obstruct it. Okay? So this is an economic, political thing, but there's really no social equality behind it. Oh, no, no. We're getting, this is emancipation. It's like Lincoln said at the time of the controversy over the British mail steamer Trent, which was seized by an American naval vessel on the high seas and enraged the British to the point of declaring war. Lincoln's advice was, one war at a time. Okay? So you know, we're, we're taking baby steps here. We're taking baby. But on the other hand, is this not in conformity with the model of a man whose guiding star was prudent? Lincoln's question is always going to be, have we gotten to our objective? Not, you know, let's get preoccupied with the means. Let's also think about the consequences. Integrity of consequences, integrity of means, balance. Yeah, there's, there's not anything here about social or political equality, but there is something here about emancipation. One war at a time. So do you, do, does this, now, now do you see why Southerners looked at Lincoln's pledges and decided they were hollow? Lincoln hasn't laid hands directly as the President of the United States or as the federal government on any slaves. He's letting the state legislatures do it. And you know one other thing that that does? It not only satisfies the letter of his promise, but it also does one other wonderful thing that did not happen in connection with Fremont's emancipation by martial law. Was what, do you suppose? I'm oh, sorry, what? Doesn't go to the courts. That's right. In, in this time, before the 14th Amendment and you know, the incorporation doctrine, there is this firewall between state and federal jurisdictions. And on the one hand, the firewall operated in such a way that the state governments couldn't challenge the federal government but it also meant that the federal government could not challenge what was exclusively a state priority. And if the state legislature does all this, nobody can go into federal court and say that their federal rights have been violated because, in fact, the firewall between federal and state jurisdictions is such that nothing has been violated that way. 
So no threat of this going into the federal courts. It's been made court-proof, or at least federal court-proof. Oh yeah, people might sue in state court, but look, you know, that's the state's problem to resolve, okay? But what Lincoln is most interested in doing is keeping this out of the grasp of Roger Tawney. And if you think that's exaggerated, take a close look at Tawney's behavior during the Civil War. I mean, the war is only a month old, and Tawney has issued a document, ex part Merriman, trying to obstruct the Lincoln administration's conduct of the war. More dramatic than that, in 1863, a case challenging the legality of the federal blockade of the Confederacy comes before the Supreme Court, and it's only because by 1863, Lincoln has been able to fill two slots on the court, that the decision in prize cases comes down on the side of the Lincoln administration, but it's a five to four vote upholding the blockade. Tawney wrote the minority opinion denouncing the blockade as unconstitutional, incidentally. Tawney had had, by, the, by virtue of one changed vote, if Tawney had had his way, Tawney would have declared the entire federal blockade unconstitutional. And what would that have done toward winning the Civil War? So if anyone who, anyone who has any doubts about the threat Roger Tawney posed in this process needs to take a look at what the federal judiciary was doing during the Civil War. Yeah? But Tawney would obviously would also strike down state legislatures. Nope, he can't do it. The firewall prevents him from reaching over and dealing with what are exclusively state matters. Again, wipe out all understanding that we have today of the incorporation doctrine, in which federal courts have review of state legislation. That did not exist in 1861. That did not exist. Regardless of Dred Scott. Because Dred Scott's not a decision about the states. That that did not that dealt with ex that dealt with federal matters external and over and above state jurisdiction. Doesn't deal with what is strictly speaking a state matter. Now, could Tawney have invented a way of trying to speak to that? Well, you know, maybe. But that would have required some torturous application of federal state doctrine, and Lincoln simply doesn't expect that that to happen. And, that's a, legi- and that's, that's a legitimate expectation. Uh, Lincoln feels reasonably confident that if he can keep this out of the federal courts, that will keep Tawney from meddling with it. So, so did none of these border state constitutions protect slavery in their constitutions? Oh, in their statutes they did, yeah. But yeah. not in the state constitution? No, not in the state. Well, in the state, const- uh, the state constitutions as... <coughs> Uh, as incorporating their statute law, which technically this is what constitutions, state constitutions are supposed to do. Yeah, they were all committed in varying ways to slavery. But the state constitution, the only review power that the federal government had over the state constitutions was the provision of the constitution ensuring a republican form of government. You can have a republican form of government and have slaves. You know, the fact that they were slaves there did not provide an opening for federal government oversight. And one of the Actually, one of the, 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 the prize, ca- one of the test cases about this kind of jurisdiction is an opinion written by all people in the world, Roger Tawney, in 1845 in, uh, in Luther versus Brown, which is the case concerning the Door Rebellion in Rhode Island. 
the Rhode Island state government was still functioning on its old colonial charter. There was an insurgent movement to try to write a new popular constitution. And what it amounted to was there sprang up in Rhode Island virtually two separate state governments. Who, who's here from Rhode Island? All right, you know the whole story about the Door Rebellion? I'd love to say I did. Oh, okay. How <laughs> <laughs> about transplant? I'm sorry. All right. Well, Tawney hands down the uh, ruling in 1845 uh, on the appeal of uh, the door, the Dorites in the Door Rebellion, in which he basically says the federal government is taking hands off on this problem, this dispute within the state of Rhode Island, because the federal government has no jurisdiction over determining which constitution, the old charter constitution or this new constitution the Dorites want to put in place. Federal government has you know, no business making any kind of decision that way. So Tawney, by his own hand, had tied his wrists. Yes? Can you remind me who appointed Tawney to the bench? Was Andrew Jackson? Jackson. That's what we thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Andrew Jackson, throughout his presidency, had been at loggerheads with the Chief Justice, John Marshall. And you know, Marshall and Jackson cordially hated each other. I mean, they just represented two different political worlds. And as soon as John Marshall died, Tawney gets appointed by Jackson. Why? Because Tawney is one of Jackson's pets. Tawney, so to speak, is responsible for the 1830s equivalent of a Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, this takes us back to the Nixon administration. I have been warned that some of us are not old enough to remember this. <laughs> Some of us are, though, all right? Um, and and ba basically, there, Jackson went through two secretaries of the Treasury trying to get them to withdraw the federal deposits from the, bank of the Second Bank of the United States. They refused to do it. And finally, Jackson turns to Tawney, and Tawney does it for Jackson. So Tawney is a loyal spear carrier for Andrew Jackson. His reward? He's appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yep. Yep. Figures, doesn't it? Yeah. You bet. Tawney is a Marylander, incidentally. Although he emancipated his own slaves. Yet he is a Marylander and hard as rocks on his opposition to abolition and especially to Lincoln. Yeah. In reading ex parte I'm very sympathetic to Lincoln's uh, issuing the. Uh, Suspension of habeas corpus under those circumstances until Congress had come into session. Mm -hmm. But, and, and I've always just been negative against Tony because I don't ever know if read secondary and tertiary doctrines. But could you elaborate a little? Because when I actually read Ex Part Merriman, I was actually surprised. In my reading of it, I had to say I thought Tony made a lot of sense. But could you elaborate on that a little? Well, fundamentally, it's a, it's a civil liberties case. John Merriman was a Marylander suspected of recruiting Marylanders for Confederate service, is detained and tossed into the cooler at uh, Fort McHenry in Baltimore. Um, a warrant for him, a bench warrant, was issued so that he could come into state court. Everybody knew that the if, if Merriman was brought into a state court in Maryland, he'd be set free. 
So the federal commandant at Fort McHenry, George Cadwallader, refuses. Tawney, now this is in the day when justices of the Supreme Court also acted as circuit judges, and each judge in the Supreme Court was assigned a federal circuit. In his capacity as a judge for the federal circuit in Maryland, Tawney sees an opportunity here, gets involved, and issues a writ of habeas corpus. Uh, the writ is served on Cadwallader. Cadwallader refuses to release Merriman. Uh, Tawney, fully expecting this, uh, goes back and writes ex part Merriman, attacking the Lincoln administration for unconstitutional usurpation of authority in <coughs> suspending the writ of habeas corpus. The substance of Tawney's argument is this is a violation of the Constitution's provision that the writ of habeas corpus can only be suspended by Congress, not by the President of the United States. Now, mind you, this is happening in May of 1861, when Maryland is still up in the air about which side it's going to come down on. Uh, there have been riots in Maryland trying to obstruct the passage of federal troops toward Washington. But Tawney's opinion is that there is no constitutional authority for the president to do this. Although the Constitution does provide for suspension of the writ, that provision occurs in Article I, describing the legislative branch. Although, curiously, the actual description of suspension does not specify Congress as having the authority to suspend the writ. But somebody's got the authority to suspend the writ. Well, in May of 1861, Congress is not in session. What is Lincoln to do? He moves ahead and suspends the writ on his authority as president, and this is what Tawney is objecting to. And Tawney believes this is a civil liberties violation. I mean, it's not only it's unconstitutional, but you know, here, poor John Merriman is being silenced for his opinion. He's a citizen of the United States. He should not be treated this way. And if all this sounds familiar, if all this sounds like current events, it is. You know, we're still haggling over these questions. Uh, even even today. Yeah? I know that the states in rebellion against the Union were in rebellion against the Union, and in other words, they were at war. But why did, if these offers were made to emancipate slaves by selling them into other states, why did they not consider selling them into Virginia or into Tennessee or into Arkansas or... Because it, it would have been a little dangerous to try to move slaves through the Union and Confederate lines. There is the possibility of being shot. Okay. That was it. It wasn't a money thing. Then. No. It was the money to buy them. No, no, it was not that. Not that case. Yes? Yes. Um, I'd like to say two things first and then ask you a question. The first thing is... Uh, uh, April 17 is uh, now celebrated as a uh, uh, paid holiday for DC water. Right. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think it's actually a paid holiday. I think it's a voluntary holiday at this no, point. for DC water. For DC government. Oh, for the district. Right. I'm thinking federal. Okay. Yeah. Also, that uh, I, I don't know whether you mentioned that uh, DC uh, was uh, a free haven for fugitive uh, slaves. It becomes a mecca for fugitive okay. slaves from Maryland and from Virginia. And then my question is, um, how how uh, were slaves uh, valued in terms of uh, a, a praise value? 
But when I read the, uh, you know, we have a famous book in D.C., uh, in D.C. history, that uh, how people were valued, you know, based on uh, age or, you know, maybe the look, I don't know. Um, age, health, skill, you know, if they had a particular skill like a carpenter, all of those went in, into the making of the valuations. But, you know, is there a, is there a blue book? You know, I, no, no, no. There's, 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 no, there's no blue book. No, there's no internet to go, you know, see what the value is. Um, I mean, there's, there's, something, there's something grotesque about going into the Washington papers and seeing these lists of valuations, except, except when you realize that, in fact, those valuations were really the price of the ticket out of slavery. And, and at that point, it's the sort of thing where you grit your teeth and you say, okay, that's better than simply perpetual slavery. $500, all right. If, it, if, it, if it, all it takes is $500 to get to a man's, okay, we'll do it. So it's, it's, it's very torturous reading this. Because on the one hand, you're just liable to say, oh, this, is, this is insane. But on the other hand, you're also saying, there goes slavery, not with a bang, but a whimper. And Lincoln's, Lincoln's feeling all along had always been, this is how he explains his support for this. He says, look, the war is costing us a million dollars a day, not to mention the lives and other property lost. Isn't, at the end of the day, isn't it a whole lot cheaper to get to emancipation this way than the other? You know, we, could, we could end slavery, we could buy out slavery for the equivalent of about a month's worth of war. Why, well, isn't it better to do that? So, yeah, it's a torturous read. All right, let's, let's go a little bit further in the calendar. Let's go to May of 1862. Did we just do that? I'm sorry. He expands the offer. All right. June of 1862. General George Britton McClellan takes his great army of the Potomac down to the James River Peninsula, assaults Richmond, and is in turn assaulted by a Confederate army under Robert E. Lee. Lee's assault is the much more effective. In fact, for seven days at the end of June, 1862, Lee delivers one body blow after another to McClellan and the Army of the Potomac, to the point where, by the end of that week of fighting, McClellan and his army have squirreled themselves up at a little steamer landing on the James River known as Harrison's Landing. At one point, McClellan even wonders out loud whether he will have to surrender. Lincoln chooses this moment to come down and visit McClellan and the army directly. On the 8th of July, Lincoln ties up at the wharf. McClellan meets him before he even gets off the boat and presents him with a letter. Three weeks before, McClellan had written to Lincoln asking if Lincoln would be interested in hearing his opinions about the progress of the war. Lincoln said, sure. This letter was McClellan's opinions. It's known as the Harrison's Landing Letter, and it is a sensation. 
especially from a general whose army has just gotten its ears beaten in. Effectively, what the Harrison's Landing letter warns Lincoln to do is to not do anything political, especially about slavery, because if he does, the Army of the Potomac will disintegrate. It will desert. He also advises Lincoln that Lincoln really needs a general-in-chief. Yeah, I know, fill in the blank. Okay. Lincoln folds the letter in his pocket, thanks McClellan, reviews the army, goes back to Washington. When he arrives in Washington, he does two things. The first thing he does is to appoint a general-in-chief, Henry Wager Halleck. Take that, Georgie boy. The second thing he does is gather together the representatives from the border states, congressional representatives from the border states, and makes one more appeal to them. Adopt the compensation plan. The next day they write a joint letter back to him, the majority of them do anyway, telling him to go jump in the reservoir. I mean, in specific terms, they tell him to mind his constitutional duties. But, you know, the, the terms were interchangeable. They throw the whole compensated emancipation idea right back in his lap. Now, normally, for an astute pop politician like Abraham Lincoln, what you would say is, well, that's this session of their legislatures. We'll wait for next year. There'll be elections. There'll be a new state legislature. We'll just keep at it and keep at it and grind them down. That's the kind of thing you can do when you have all the time in the world politically. George V. McClellan had just made it clear that Lincoln does not have all the time in the world. What do you conclude from a letter in which the general of an army threatens the president of the United States that the army will disintegrate if Lincoln does anything about slavery? What do you conclude from that? I mean, is there some little polite piece of information that McClellan is dropping in his lap? Maybe it was, except for the fact of McClellan's behavior from the time of his appointment as commander of the Army of the Potomac back in 1861 up to this moment, which was one in which McClellan, a Democrat by political persuasion, unsympathetic to emancipation, with deep political connections to the democratic establishment in the Northeast, and who has made no secret of his contempt for Lincoln, whom he described as the original guerrilla, and who has dropped indiscreet hints from time to time about the need in this great national emergency for a dictator, again, fill in the blank, this is the man who writes the Harrison Landing Letter. And what conclusion is Lincoln to draw from this? When Lincoln goes down to Harrison's Landing, he takes several of his staff with him. The staff fan out into the camp of the Army of the Potomac with their ears open. And what do they hear from McClellan's officers? They hear things like, we need to march on Washington. Those radicals in Washington have turned this war into a crusade against slavery. We're not going to fight for that. Lincoln puts this all together and he realizes that the clock is ticking toward political midnight much faster than he thought. What is going to happen if McClellan decides to turn this army 
which has fought so unenthusiastically against the Confederates. What if McClellan decides to turn this army on Washington, where it seems the officer corps of the army is a whole lot more enthusiastic about doing what it needs to do? What would happen? Let us suppose that McClellan, in the name of preserving the republic, opening a negotiation with the South, resolving the crisis and the emergency, what if McClellan had taken it upon himself to march on Washington? Well, everybody did that. Everybody did that. Everyone's striking Napoleonic gestures in this war. What if McClellan had done that? He didn't need to put Abe Lincoln up against a wall and shoot him. We didn't have to be unpleasant. He could simply become the real effective power. He could become the man that Lincoln has to go to with everything from now on. He could become the sort of temporary emergency super president. Congress, of course, could be sent packing home. We don't need them. He could do as Oliver Cromwell did to the long parliament. He could do as other dictators had done to legislatures in the past. He could declare an emergency like Andrew Jackson and assume martial law powers, not for the purpose, as in Fremont and Missouri, of abolishing slavery, but of opening negotiations with the Confederacy for peace. Could that happen? Is that totally far-fetched? Is it impossible to consider? Only, only if, as I said before in one of our earlier sessions, we conclude that what happened was the only thing that could have happened. Other people took much more seriously what was happening. And Lincoln was among them. 17th of July, Congress passes the first Confiscation Act. No, I'm sorry, the second Confiscation Act. This expands the reach of the first Confiscation Act by now confiscating the slaves, not just those slaves used in support of the Confederate war effort, but the slaves of any white slave owners who are participating in support of the Confederate war effort. Like the first Confiscation Act, it has legal problems. And in fact, Lincoln sends the original version of the bill back to Congress warning them that this Confiscation Act, this confiscation strategy of theirs, is very likely to backfire because it will run afoul of the Constitution's ban on bills of attainder. Nevertheless, five days later, Lincoln meets with his cabinet and lays before them an emancipation proclamation, a presidential proclamation, issued on the strength of his war powers as commander-in-chief. The cabinet sits in stunned silence. The first man to find his voice is Edward Bates, the attorney general, from Missouri, an old line conservative Whig, who suggests, Lincoln, I am in favor of this proclamation, provided that once we've emancipated the slaves, we deport them all to Africa. Real sweetheart of a guy. Others begin to pipe up and say, isn't this going to jeopardize affairs in the border states? Lincoln ignores them. He says, I'm not asking you whether I should issue this. 
I'm really asking you for your opinion about how I've worded it, because I am going to do this. There is some evidence that Lincoln, in fact, had drafted a preliminary version of this as early as June. Now in July, with the clock running, with the possibility of McClellan's intervention, he is looking to wedge emancipation into public policy by whatever means he can before, before McClellan has a chance to act. The Secretary of State is the last to speak, William Henry Seward. He suggests not withdrawing this proposal, but timing it better. He says, look, the Union Army has just experienced a serious defeat. If we issue this proclamation now, what it will look like is hopelessness. It will look like we have lost the war and that what we are doing is issuing a proclamation that will not only emancipate slaves, but incite slave rebellion as though we couldn't defeat the Confederacy on our own, so now we're reaching for the last straw, which is, try, which is to try to set a fire in the Confederate rear. Seward, as Secretary of State, has his pulse on all the foreign affairs. He is aware of the fact that the foreign powers in Europe, England, France, Russia, have not looked on the Northern cause in a very friendly light. For one thing, the federal blockade has obstructed their supplies of cotton. That's not nice. For another thing, the British and the French have only just recently been through their own problems with race wars. In 1857 through 1859, the British had gone through the Indian Mutiny, and that was, at bottom, a race war in India, in colonial India. The French, of course, had colonial dominions in Algeria, where they were attempting to put down insurgent attacks and guerrilla warfare from Arab tribes in the deserts. They certainly were not going to appreciate the prospect of a slave eruption and racial warfare in North America. Not worthy. So Seward says delay issuing the proclamation. Don't derail it, just delay it until there has been a signal union victory so that it will look like we are dealing from strength rather than from weakness. And that Lincoln is willing to agree to. August 1862. <coughs> Lincoln invites a delegation of black clergy from the district to come to the White House and asks them to cooperate with him in recruiting volunteers for a colonization effort for freed slaves. His speech to this delegation is a mixture of condescension and sympathy. Condescension in that effectively Lincoln is asking that free blacks desert the land of their birth, in fact, a land in which some of them have been around a lot longer than a lot of the white people who had just gotten off the boat. But it is also a statement of sympathy for he says, we have given you very little reason to love us. We have inflicted upon you perhaps the greatest injustice that has ever been inflicted on a people. Would it not be better, given the enmity that must result from that, for us to be separate? And yet, even there, Lincoln will only ask for volunteers. 
not like Edward Bates, compulsory deportation. He wants an experiment, not a movement. Perhaps what is most striking about this is that this is the first occasion in which a president of the United States invites a delegation of black people to come to the White House for a discussion on equal terms. And as the Washington Star described it in its reporting, Lincoln not only meets the delegation but shakes their hands. I want you to think about what a moment that was in the eyes of white supremacist Americans. Also in August of 1862, Horace Greeley publishes a public letter in his New York Tribune attacking Lincoln for not having more vigorously prosecuted the Second, Second Confiscation Act. Lincoln replies with what a lot of people suppose was an already prepared reply. Lincoln has simply been waiting for an opportunity for someone to give him the daylight to issue this letter. But he responds with a letter which he sends and publishes in the National Intelligencer, which is Washington, then Washington's paper of record. In it, he makes the famous comment, which has been held against him for so long, in which he says, my aim is to save the Union. If I could save the Union by freeing the slaves, I would do it. If I could save the Union by not freeing the slaves, I would do that. If I could save the Union by freeing some and not others, I would do that. Which, to our reading, looks about as wishy-washy as it could be. Effectively, it sounds like he's saying, my only real concern is the Union. I don't really care about black people. They're just the pawns in my strategy. That is one way you can read it. That is not the way people read it in 1862. Again, like the invitation of that delegation to the White House, reflect for a moment on what the impact of this letter must have on Americans who have been used to a presidency which for 60 years previous had done nothing but kowtow to the interests of the South and slaveholders. Here is the President of the United States stating with perfect even-handedness <coughs> that he might not emancipate the slaves, but then again, he just might. Or he might emancipate some, but you know, maybe not others. But he just would be willing to consider emancipating slaves on a perfectly even basis with every other possible policy. Whoo, boy! This is one of the clutch your chest and fall over dead on your desk kind of moments. Here's a president of the United States just almost routinely suggesting that as far as he is concerned, emancipation is fully as much within contemplation as any other policy. That's a warning. That's a warning of what he considers himself empowered to do. At the end of August 1862, the army the Union Army, now reorganized and put under the command of General John Pope, has its butt royally kicked at the Second Battle of Manassas. Lincoln is forced to reinstall George McClellan as commander of the army. And in an unwanted display of energy and intelligence, McClellan corners Lee's army behind the Antietam Creek in western Maryland and drives Lee across the Potomac. It's not a colossal victory, but it's victory enough. Once Lincoln is sure of the results, on the Monday following, Lincoln meets with the cabinet, reintroduces his Emancipation Proclamation, and issues it the next day as a formal order. 
We're in September now. Right. September 22nd, 1862 is when he meets with the cabinet. It goes out to the Army and every other news agency the next day. This is a preliminary proclamation because Lincoln announces that this will not go into force until the 1st of January, 1863. Between September 23 and January 1, the Confederacy has a window of opportunity to lay down its arms. Needless to say, it does not. Did Lincoln expect it would? Probably not. On the 1st of January, 1863, Lincoln holds his annual New Year's levee. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry in American politics comes to the White House to shake his arm off. <laughs> At 2 o'clock, they finally get them all out. You know what they did? They had people come in the front door, and they had taken one of the big, long windows in the state dining room on the first floor, and they had converted that into an exit doorway. So they you know, just move people straight through. That's what they did. They're like an assembly line. First people who show up at noon were the justices of the Supreme Court, then the justices of the district court, then the diplomatic corps, then generals of the army by rank and seniority, and then any other civilian who happened to wander by. By 2 o'clock, they were all gone. All, I mean, it was the, the commissioner of public buildings, Benjamin B. French, was standing alongside Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. And French is making sure, all right, move these people along, keep the cattle run moving. And you get a shake of the hand, you get a nod of the head. That's all, next. And one of those affairs. <laughs> Two o'clock, it's all done. Lincoln goes up to his office. William Henry Seward, who had been having his own levee for the State Department, appears with his son, Frederick. He has a document. It is the formal engrossed copy of the proclamation. Lincoln sits at his upstairs desk, goes to sign the proclamation. His hand is trembling. Not because he's afraid of what he's about to do, but because he's been shaking hands for two hours with all these people. But he is concerned that with the shake in his hand, if he signs this and it looks wavery, people will think that he had doubts. So he holds his breath, he bears down with the pen, and in one of those rare examples when he uses his full name, signs it, Abraham Lincoln. There, he says, that will do. A bootleg copy of the proclamation appears at 5 o'clock that afternoon in the Washington Evening Star. Somebody scooted a copy into the hands. You know, somebody said, there's always a leak in Washington. <laughs> That night, that night, as news of the proclamation's formal issuance goes out across the wires, there are celebrations all across the North. And especially at Tremont Temple in Boston, Frederick Douglass speaks. He gets up and he cracks in his best dialect voice. Things is a-workin'. And indeed they are. There's your schedule for emancipation, a long and torturous route. I also say it's a long and torturous route to 12.30 at lunch. But let me tie this all together with just a couple of answers for a couple of questions. Why didn't Lincoln emancipate the slaves at once? Answer, he couldn't. Presidents of the United States do not have plenary authority to do anything they like, even today. All right? 
and even more so in Lincoln's day. The pre because slavery was a state enactment, Lincoln had no authority as the federal executive to do anything about it. He could issue proclamations until the cows came home. But given that firewall between state and jurisdictions, there was nothing he could do directly. That is why he goes the route of the compensated gradual emancipation. Because if you can get the state legislatures to do it, then it'll stick. But otherwise, as he once explained to a visitor, he might as well throw open the window and yell down Pennsylvania Avenue for all the good it would do him to issue proclamations. So that's why he goes that way, and that's why he doesn't emancipate at once. Why didn't he enforce the Confiscation Acts and try to move towards emancipation the congressional way? Because he did not believe that that would stick either. That the Confiscation Acts were like those pieces of legislation Congress is in the habit of passing, like about flag burning and whatnot like that, which are more for the satisfaction of the voters at election time than they are for any serious expectation that they're going to be enforced. Why then, in 1863, does he finally turn around and contradict himself by issuing exactly the proclamation he believed he didn't have the authority to issue? Two reasons. One is General McClellan. The other is he issues the proclamation as not President of the United States, but as Commander-in-Chief. In other words, he is borrowing on whatever authority he is supposed to have to the presidential war powers. He is borrowing that authority to declare the slaves free as a military gesture. Now, people have sometimes said, well, see, he really, didn't, he really wasn't concerned about the slaves. He's just enacting this as a military gesture. No, the reason he acts it as a military gesture is because that's the only possible legal option he has. He doesn't have any other kind of legal authority to emancipate slaves. And even then, it's not clear whether he really has that authority, whether commanders-in-chief can issue emancipation proclamations. But he can't stop to wait until the war ends to find out. He's got McClellan as a problem. So he rolls the dice. He issues the proclamation. It's significant that a year later, he's agitating for a 13th Amendment to the Constitution to abolish slavery completely. I think that underscores the fact that even with the proclamation, Lincoln still worried what the federal courts would do to the proclamation once the war was over and his war powers expired with the war. So he goes for an amendment to the Constitution which will put the question of slavery beyond the jurisdiction of Roger Tawney forever. He calls it a king's cure for the evil, and it is. But the proclamation is its prelude. Why did the proclamation not free all the slaves? Because the proclamation excludes the slaves of the border states and the slaves in the occupied districts of the South. Again, that sounds like Lincoln is being half-hearted. Why doesn't he just go the distance? Once again, he is trying to respect the reach of his war powers. He can't exercise war powers in the border states because they never seceded from the Union. They're not at war with the United States. And the occupied districts are not at war with the United States either anymore. Remember, he had insisted the Confederacy is not a belligerent nation. 
Secession is a legal impossibility. These states have never really seceded. Once federal troops are in occupation of areas of the South, they merely resume their original status. Unless he wants to offer Roger Tawney a perfect target, he has to exclude those areas. Lastly, why is the language of the proclamation so bland? I mean, here's the man who's the author of the second inaugural of the Gettysburg Address, but the Emancipation Proclamation comes out teeming with whereases and therefores, and it sounds like it was written by a country lawyer. I think probably because he was looking upon this as a legal document rather than a persuasive argument. Bingo! I mean, the Gettysburg Address is great rhetoric, but you can't take it into a court of law. You get caught speeding. I want to see you take the Gettysburg Address into the, and really try to impress the judge with that. Oh, yeah, that'll get you far. Yeah, we gave about as far as the county jail for contempt. The Gettysburg Address is not a legal document. He could afford to indulge flights of rhetoric, but the Emancipation Proclamation is intended to have legal force. It is a working document, and therefore every word in it has to be carefully sculpted to have legal force and legal standing. In fact, the only moment of rhetoric he permits himself is at the prompting of Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase where at the end of the proclamation he affirms that this is an act of justice. Then he adds, and also a military necessity. <laughs> He's always, as a good lawyer, anticipating a challenge. Well, there's the Emancipation Proclamation.